What's up everybody, GenX Dividend Investor here. In this exciting video I answer 8 fascinating subscriber questions primarily around dividend investing. So if you appreciate when I do free dividend investing videos like this then please hit the thumbs up button, subscribe if you haven't yet, and then select all notifications so you're notified the next time I post a video. Also if you'd like me to potentially answer a question of yours in a future Millionaire Dividend Investing Questions and Answers video then follow me on Instagram at GenX Dividend Investor and DM me your questions. If you do send me a question, then please tell me if you don't want your name shared. And while I've been investing for about 30 years and have been able to retire early once my dividend income grew larger than my expenses, I'm not a licensed professional financial advisor, so treat what I say as entertainment only. Okay, the first question comes from BT Jordan, and they said, Hey Gen X, I love your YouTube channel and have been investing in my own dividend portfolio for about 5 years now. My question that I have for you is this. Do you think that the major gas companies such as ExxonMobil, Chevron, Shell, etc. will be able to continue to pay generous and stable dividends for the next 50 plus years? With more people switching to electric cars and people looking for renewable energy, will gas be as dominant in the next 50 years as it has been in the last years? Howdy BT Jordan, thanks for the question and congrats for investing. No, I don't think it will be as dominant, but will it be enough to pay generous and stable dividends for the next 50 years? That's a more challenging question, which I'll attempt to answer. But first, did you ever notice that it's spelled Gen EX and not Gen X? Do you see the double meaning? I'm both part of Generation X, but I'm also an ex-dividend investor, aka Gen X. And no, I don't really invest based on the ex-dividend date, but I still like the play on words. Anyways, let's dig into your question. For reference, the world consumes around 100 million barrels of oil a day, with the United States being about 20% of that. After the US is China at 13% and then India at almost 5%. But the trends look like China and India oil and gas consumption needs are growing quickly, which makes sense as their middle class grows and their living standards grow, and as their demand for cars and travel increases. And the march towards electric vehicles in places like China and India isn't as fast as you might guess for a bunch of reasons, including the fact that charging stations aren't all over the place yet. But fuel is only about half of global oil demand and the rest goes to medicines, running shoes, sunglasses, lubricants, and a bunch of other uses. Like if you want to put some Vaseline on your skin and you glance at the label, you might notice that it's called petroleum jelly. So yes, those evil fossil fuels are being used a lot more broadly than most people realize. What sort of fossil fuel usage trends have we had and what will they look like going forward? Well, here's an animated estimate that says that we have about 47 years left of oil until it's gone though those sorts of figures are highly difficult to estimate correctly. The reality is that oil supplies are limited by current technology, the financial viability of what can be produced, and other constraints like resource access and politics and such. Here are some estimates from a variety of sources showing oil reserves by country, as well as how much production they have and how many years of production are in reserve. So Venezuela has almost 20% of oil reserves, followed by Saudi Arabia at 15%, Canada and Iran at around 10% each, down to the US at only 2%. And given all that, here's a graph with estimates of oil usage through 2050, broken down into various scenarios. So the y-axis is millions of barrels a day, and you can see that before the pandemic we were consuming about 100 million barrels a day around the world, and then the pandemic hit and consumption fell to around 85 million barrels a day. Then you can see three lines that represent a low, medium, and high bar of oil consumption over the next 30 years. So like the estimate for low oil consumption by 2050 would be at 38 million barrels a day. The mid-level estimate would put us at 51 million barrels a day. 
and the high-level estimate would be at 76 million barrels a day. So much lower than we are today, but still being used a lot 30 years from now. And then here's some estimates from Shell of coal, oil, gas, and bioenergy consumption trends from 2000 until 2100. This estimates oil decreasing, but still prevalent around 70 years from now. Do these estimates have bias in them? Yeah, but honestly they look reasonable to me. And if they're kind of accurate, then that means that the major oil companies will still be making money. I could see some consolidation happening where we end up with fewer major players taking bigger pieces of a smaller pie. At the same time, it's important to realize that those companies are run by management teams that are aware of global trends, so they're pushing into new revenue streams such as carbon capture. But they also may face some potential big litigation risks from things like climate change. All that being said, my guess is that oil companies will be able to pay dividends for the next five decades, though I could be wildly wrong, so I don't have my kids' personal portfolios in oil, but I do have around 12% of my personal portfolio in energy stocks, and that's a level of risk I'm comfortable with. And those are some of the reasons why you can get higher dividend yields with oil, and other things sometimes help depress oil stock prices, like increasing negative sentiment towards fossil fuel companies. Generally speaking, the higher the yield, the more risk there tends to be, and the more you need to dig into things, which leads me to the next subscriber question. This one comes from General Solution, who asks, Is it a good idea to invest in Zim shipping for the long term to collect dividends? So let's look up what Zim is on Seeking Alpha, which is the first place I normally go for information on stocks. It says, Zim Integrated Shipping Services provides container shipping and related services in Israel and internationally. It provides door-to-door -door and port-to-port -port transportation services for various types of customers. It operates a fleet of 150 vessels, and the company was incorporated in 1945. If we look at its three-year stock graph, we see the prices spiked up and then came back down, and today it's about where it started. It only shows three years because Zim started trading on the New York Stock Exchange in 2021. If we look at its dividend history, we can quickly see that its payouts have fluctuated wildly, probably because their payouts are tied to their level of earnings per quarter, or because they're located in Israel and there are currency fluctuations or something like that. This dividend history shows some smaller quarterly payouts, and then a large one at 17 bucks a share in March of 2022, and then some smaller ones ending at the most recent one of $6.40 last month in April. Let's look at what their stock price did when they paid out the most recent $6 dividend last month. Here on April 3rd, we see that Zim was $23.47 a share. Then on April 4th, it dipped down to $19.54. So not exactly six bucks, but there's also buying and selling movement that happened on that day. Still, you can see when a dividend is paid out, how a stock price tends to drop. Like, let's look at the $17 payout in March of last year. Here we see that Zim was much higher at $84 a share in March of 2022. And we can see how it fell to 68 bucks on the next trading day, i.e. around 16 bucks, so pretty close to the $17 dividend they paid out. Zim gets some attention because it's had such a high yield, so some people have jumped into it. But like they say, anything that seems too good to be true often is, especially with investing. Any super high yield stock will probably not last, because if it was high and safe and sustainable, then more people would invest to the point that the yield would get pushed down. The market has that sort of leveling ability with yield and risk. Anyways, yesterday Zim reported their first quarter results for 2023. This section says, Zim's dividend policy remains unchanged, according to which the company intends to distribute 30% to 50% of annual net income as a dividend to shareholders. And that alone could help explain some variability in payouts. 
Then they go on to say, dividend payments will be made on a quarterly basis at a rate of approximately 30% of the net quarterly income of the first three fiscal quarters of the year, cumulatively, while the total annual dividend amount to be distributed by the company, including any interim dividends paid during the first three fiscal quarters of the year, will total 30 to 50% of the annual net income. All future dividends are subject to the company's board discretion and to the restrictions provided by Israeli law. In accordance with its dividend policy and in light of the net loss recorded in the first quarter of 2023, the company will not pay a dividend to shareholders on account of its first quarter results. So it looks like that since they paid out a percentage of the net income as dividends, and because they had a loss in their recent quarter, then I guess they won't pay any dividends out in the next quarter. Now all that doesn't mean you should or shouldn't invest with them, but never just invest for yield, and always research things like their financial trends over time, how taxes are with it, who their competitors are, and blah blah blah. So to answer General Solutions' question of, is it a good idea to invest in Zim shipping for the long term to collect dividends, well, I'd say that depends on you and your risk tolerance. I'm someone who goes for more conservative investments that have longer track records of increasing dividend payments, so while I'd pass on something like a Zim, that doesn't mean you can't make money on it. Heck, I know people who invest only into high-yield stocks because they figure as long as two or three of their 10 tickers pay out, then they'll still be ahead of us slowpokes that invest in J&J and McDonald's and companies like that. To me that's gambling and not investing, but really the key is to understand the pros and cons and risks and issues of an investment and then do what makes sense to your needs and goals and risk tolerances. Okay, let's move on. The next question came from a discussion I was having on my Discord with the subscriber where they were worried that the US defaulting on their debt would end up killing dividend payments. Apparently some video they watched said that would happen. So first of all, no one knows exactly what would happen if the US defaulted on their debt due to not raising the debt ceiling because that's never happened. There have been times in history when the U.S. missed some debt payments, but they were unrelated to the debt ceiling. Like during the War of 1812, the federal government was unable to meet all its financial obligations due to military expenses and lagging revenue. Or like some experts have debated whether President Roosevelt's action to suspend the gold standard beginning in 1933 amounted to a default. Regardless, the question is if this whole debt ceiling thing will hurt dividends in any way, and of course anything is possible. For reference, the debt limit is the amount imposed by Congress that the U.S. Treasury can borrow to pay bills that have come due. The debt limit does not authorize new spending commitments. It simply allows the government to finance existing legal obligations that Congresses and Presidents of both parties have made in the past. This limit is currently at about 31 trillion bucks, though some figures have the real debt being much higher. Once the debt limit is hit, the federal government cannot automatically increase the amount of outstanding debt. Therefore, it can only draw from any cash on hand and spend its incoming revenues. And if there isn't enough cash to pay what it has to pay, then that means that a bunch of things might not get paid when they should, like Social Security payments, Medicare payments, unemployment insurance, aspects of national defense, etc. This chart of U.S. government revenues versus expenditures from 2021 shows the problem. On the left side is money coming into the government, mostly from taxes, and then expenses are on the right, such as social security, national defense, interest, etc. What you can see is that our expenses are more than our income, which means our debt increases. This might not be a sustainable solution to keep taking on more debt, but each party has their sacred cows that they don't want to touch, so things keep getting worse. Regardless what you think, it ain't adding up. This chart shows US debt as a percentage of GDP, where we were basically doing fine until World War II, where debt was more than GDP for a brief period of time. Then things got better for many decades until various tax cuts and spending increases caused us to get out of whack again. This chart of federal spending versus revenues shows that since 2001, our spending, which is the red line on top, 
has been more than our revenues, which is the blue line at the bottom. Now, governments don't necessarily have to pay off their debt. They do have to service it, though. Like, they have to pay interest and repay principal on bonds, but they don't have to pay off their bonds. They can actually issue new bonds to pay principal on old bonds, and they can borrow to pay interest. And some large debts seem to last forever, at least for governments. Like, Great Britain has mostly held on to its debt it incurred back in the Napoleonic Wars in the early 1800s. Anyways, if you're someone that is relying on Social Security to get by, then I can understand why you'd be worried right now. I mean, you've paid into the system for decades, and it's effectively your money, and now you feel like it's being held hostage due to politics. My personal take is that you gotta pay your debts. Even the Lannisters pay their debts, and the US needs to do so as well. Unfortunately, the budgeting and spending and approval process is flawed enough that we find ourselves in this spot. But back to the question at hand, I don't think that a government potentially defaulting would automatically mean qualified dividend companies would not pay their dividends. I mean, if people kept going to McDonald's, then McDonald's will keep generating revenue and hopefully enough income, and then they should keep paying their owners a share of the profits. If people keep buying shampoo and deodorant, etc., then Procter & Gamble should keep paying dividends. So while a debt default would probably lead to a crash in the markets, as well as would erode the U.S. financial standing in the world, and I think we would be hit with increased interest rates, which would hurt people with some types of debt or those trying to get new loans, I still think the quality dividends would keep getting paid out. But hey, what do I know? Okay, let's move on. The next question comes from Travis, who said, Do you have a max number of shares of a company that you don't want to go over? A percentage of your portfolio you don't want to go over? I have a few stocks that I feel I have enough shares of. So do I reinvest to buy more, or use those dividends to buy other companies? I like to stop around 500 shares. What's your take? Hey Travis, so no, I don't have a max number of shares of a company that I don't want to go over. However, a guideline of mine is to limit the size of any single position to be at most 10% of my overall portfolio in terms of value. I call it a guideline and not a rule, because I'd bend my guideline by a few percentage if I really loved the company and believed in its ongoing growth potential. I think looking at the total value of a stock relative to your whole portfolio is more useful than looking at how many shares of that stock exists in your portfolio. And what I'd do is reinvest the shares that you feel are cheap and or that you want to increase your ownership in. Okay, let's move on. This next question came from Sean. He said, Love your video on living on dividends over two years. Do you see a downfall of retiring and moving a $1.25 million 401k into an IRA? Then put 25% into each of SCHD, DGRO, JEPI, and JEPQ, and then live off the dividends. If my math is correct, I should make about 6 k per month. Am I thinking correctly on the math? Do you see a downfall in this scenario? Hey Sean, so it's hard for me to answer without knowing more about your personal situation, so let's just focus on the specifics of what we do know. If you split 1.25 million into 4 tickers, then each one would be worth 312 k 312k of SCHD, today's trailing 12-month yield of 3.74%, is about 11,600 bucks a year. 312k of DGRO, at today's trailing 12-month yield of 2.41%, is about 7,500 bucks a year. 312k of JEPI, and instead of assuming an 11% yield, let's go with 7%, which is more in line with what the fund managers say is more probable. So 312k of JEPI at 7% is about $22,000 a year. And let's assume JEPQ is the same, so another 22k a year. In total, that's about $63,000 a year, which is about $5,300 a month. So your estimate of 6k per month is reasonable, given you probably didn't get as conservative as I did. Of course, you may have tax implications when you withdraw, so factor that into your consideration. In terms of downfalls, there are some other things to consider. 
Like holding 25% in one ticker is too much for my blood, especially if it isn't a broad market ETF like VTI or VU. But I'd be okay with holding SCHD at more than my 10% guideline amount, but I wouldn't feel comfortable doing that with JEPI and JEPQ. That doesn't mean you shouldn't do it, it's just a risk. There's also a risk that if the fund managers at JP Morgan Chase are no longer with the company, then it wouldn't perform as well. Though I think that's a minor risk because they probably have strong succession plans in place to make sure things like employee attrition are covered. Another issue to be aware of is that some people feel that SCHD is too top-heavy of an ETF, i.e. it holds too much in too few positions. But I personally am fine with it, and I actually hold larger concentrations in my portfolio. Another issue to be aware of is that some people don't like all the stocks in the SCHD, including myself, but I'm still fine going along with it, and would be fine holding a larger percentage of it in my portfolio. Now, I've never actually owned something like JEPI, which is kind of a covered call ETF, or rather, a defensive equity ETF with a covered call overlay. But I'd still put it into my riskier category, given its usage of ELNs, even though it only holds a relatively low percentage of them. General covered call ETFs are often known for limiting some upside, though Japanese managers do out-of-the-money call options, which they hope will allow for more upside. But still, that's a risk to be aware of, though if you're retired, you probably won't care as much as someone who's focused on growth. Another risk with JEPI is that it's only been around a few years, so not much of a track record. Though you could look at JEPIX, which has a bit more data behind it, though still not as much as I'd like. And since you're talking about holding JEPI in a retirement account, then I guess the taxes you don't need to worry about too much, other than the distribution taxes. Something else to be aware of with JEPI and SCHD and funds like that are that the payouts are volatile, unlike blue chip dividend stocks, which tend to just go sideways and up. Sean also asked if I saw a big downfall of moving a $1.25 million 401k into an IRA. Well, some of the disadvantages of rolling over a 401k into an IRA include no loan options, a decrease in creditor protection, possibly higher fees, and the loss of a possible early withdrawal without penalty. Though I don't know, maybe you can take loans against IRAs, I've never tried. But I personally have always been excited to transfer my old work 401ks into my control in an IRA, and I've never regretted doing it. Hopefully that helps paint the picture on my thoughts of what you asked, and while I might not do it, that doesn't mean you shouldn't. Okay, let's move on. The next question comes from Andrew, who is responding to a video I did called Why I Chose Not to Make $325,000 a Year in Dividends, where I explained why I don't go all in on higher yield things like JEPI, and instead stick with far more conservative stocks. Andrew said, I generally agree with everything you said, except I don't get why you just don't hold SCHD as a large chunk instead of trying to pick individual stocks. Good question, and there are actually a bunch of reasons why I don't just hold SCHD at 50% or whatever of my portfolio. One reason is because if I sold all my individual stocks in my taxable account and moved all that cash into SCHD, then I'd suffer a big tax hit. Reason two is because I found that I'm more motivated to own individual companies versus baskets of companies and that motivation has helped keep me investing over three decades through very tough times. Three is because I can tailor my portfolio to my desires. Like I can nudge the yield up if I want, more I can get to a category I want, more I can have the sector composition I want, etc. that I can't do with managed ETFs. Yet another reason I don't go all in on SCHD is because I'm not a fan of every single SCHD position, and if I were going to hold a very large percentage of it, then I'd prefer to like all of them. Still, I wouldn't be opposed to own more than I do now. Okay, let's move on. The next question comes from Zabo, who said, I'm quite new to direct investing, though have been involved in financial services throughout my career. My question is, what are your thoughts on QYLD with DRIP? Curious as to your overall thoughts, as well as your thoughts of using it as a pension to draw from after 10 years, and also your thoughts of somebody at the age of 69 moving some money into QYLD, 
say 80K to 100K, from an investment that is currently paying 5% per year in perpetuity. Hey Zabo, so I'm not too impressed with what I see from QILD. Check out this total return chart on Seeking Alpha that shows stock appreciation plus dividends comparing the SP500 to QILD. What you'll find is that the SP500 has returned about 232% since 2014, which is when QILD sprang into existence, but QILD has only returned 83%. Or to say that differently, the SP500's total return over the last decade was about 10% annualized, as compared to 6% annualized for QILD. And if you look at QILD's stock price since inception, you can see the problem. It's down about 31% over the last 10 years. Ouch. Of course, some of you might say that there are trade-offs when you go for income, like QILD, versus stock appreciation, and you're right. But the degree of anti-performance in QILD is simply too large for me to ignore. Another wrinkle to be aware of is that the taxation of its distributions. Apparently some investors believed that QILD's distributions would be return of capital, but it ended up being ordinary dividends, which meant a lot of folks owed more in taxes than they had anticipated. In fact, I read some complaints from people who apparently had to file amended tax returns because tax info flowed into them after they had done their taxes. Which reminds me, please leave me a comment if you've owned QILD for at least two years so you can fill me in on your tax experiences. Going back to Zabo's question, I'm not sure what you mean when you say 5% returns in perpetuity. Maybe you're talking about an annuity or a pension or something. I'd need to know what that other investment was to more accurately answer if I'd move it. For me, I'd probably move it, but I like to consolidate things and I'd like to ensure my kids can eventually inherit it. For example, I have a pension plan coming to me in the future, but I actually reached out to that pension plan to ask if they would pay me out a lump sum right now, as I'd rather have a small amount of cash that I can control, rather than a larger lump sum in the future tied to a pension that I can't control and can't pass on to my kids. But I'm not you, and it might make more sense for you to hold on to that 5% in perpetuity thing. Anyways, that's my take on it. Let's move on. The last question came from someone who asked to remain anonymous. They shared a bunch of personal details about themselves, so I'll just summarize things a bit. Basically, he was talking about his job and how it seems the more cutthroat people were seen as more important and were considered more valuable in his company. He also mentioned that he was thinking of starting a TikTok account, but was worried about how that'd be perceived, and he doubted that anyone would watch him even if he started one. Bottom line, he asked for my feedback. So first of all, thanks for asking. I appreciate it. I've always told my kids that one of the most important things in life was to be nice and kind to everyone. I encourage you to reflect on the fact that it's nice to be important, but it's more important to be nice. But hey, I don't work where you work, so it's hard for me to really understand what you mean. In terms of TikTok, well, I've never had a TikTok account, though I've heard of people getting fired for what they did on TikTok, so maybe talk to your boss about it and see what they think. But don't fear failure, just be terrified of regret. What I mean is I think it's better to try something like TikTok, even if you think you'll fail, rather than not do it and live with the regret of wishing you had. Again, that's assuming you won't get fired for it. And always do the right thing, even if you don't get the reward in the short term. Work hard, don't give up, and keep trying. You will win in the long run. And that wraps up my subscriber questions for this video. I hope you guys enjoyed all that, and I'm sorry if I couldn't get to your question if you submitted one. I've got a long list of questions I've been asked, so I can't guarantee I'll get to everyone's in a video, but I'll do my best. If you'd like me to potentially answer a question of yours in a future Millionaire Dividend Investing Questions and Answers video, then follow me on Instagram at GenXDividendInvestor and DM me your questions. If you do send me a question, then please tell me if you don't want your name shared. If you want, you can always see if I have any Patreon kink spots open, which lets us chat voice one-on-one, -on -one, though I don't have any kink spots available at this time. Also, I'd like to mention my Seeking Alpha Premium Affiliate link in the description of this video, as well as in the pinned comment. 
Using it lets you try Seeking Alpha Premium for 14 days for free, and you can cancel it at any time during those two weeks. And then they charge you $239 for a year, and in year two they charge whatever the going rate is. I personally paid $239 a year for premium access for multiple years, mostly because I valued the articles in the comments section so much, to the point that I literally will never buy or sell a stock without first reading all that information. And as someone who takes their investing seriously, I value having more information at my fingertips. And if you appreciate when I do free dividend investing videos like this, then please hit the thumbs up button, subscribe if you haven't yet, and then select all notifications so you're notified the next time I post a video. Finally, I highly recommend that you join my free dividend discord chat server which has over 10,000 dividend investors on it from 72 countries around the world. Thanks for watching, stay positive, and I'll talk to you again real soon. I am not a financial advisor and these videos are for entertainment, inspiration, and educational purposes only. Investing of any kind involves risk. I am only sharing my opinion with no guarantee of gains or losses on investments.